Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I love that I get to go into spaces where I didn't think that I belonged because I grew up in this different way. So I'm in this, grew up super poor. My parents shoplifted food uh, from the grocery store, sometimes like uneducated in the higher education sense, but, you know, probably lots of street smarts is what we would refer to ourselves as. Street Kansas street smarts, different than New York City street smarts. And I think that because I've had to overcome so many of those conversations in my head about not belonging, I get to invite other people and tell them, you belong here. Any space that you find yourself in, you belong there. And that life has given you these experiences to prepare you for this moment. And nobody else's life has prepared for them for this moment. And so sometimes when it's really, really hard or really, really scary, that is the difference that I get to bring to the table. How crazy that I got to be in juvie. I didn't belong there. Although my husband says the more he learns about me, the more he thinks I probably had a glorified version of myself as a teenager. I was explaining how back in my day, you know, we would smoke pot on a pop can and he was like, Hill, I really think that you think you were this saint in high school, but you were not a saint in high school. (laughs) I think that that's the difference. That's the difference of being unexpected and really leaning into saying, I'm going to insert myself in this other space where a person like me usually wouldn't hang out. I don't even understand what's going on in my law firm 90% of the time because I don't speak Spanish. I get to come into this space and say, wherever you are, you belong. And I'm going to make you believe that until you believe that. How you did, how you did. That was the voice of Hillary Walsh. Today's episode is a wide-ranging conversation on immigration. Many of you might not know this, but as an immigrant, immigration is a huge, huge topic that I focus on and is is one of the causes that I'm a big proponent of. We talk about the systemic issues that pertain to immigration, what it's like to be an immigrant in the United States and how she built her business. So this plays as simultaneously a conversation about what immigration is like in the United States, as well as how someone can build a business and then scale it. She's someone who has managed to scale her business successfully year after year. And so it can serve as a lesson for you if you're trying to replicate her business model. As always, the links will be in the show notes for you to connect with her. I hope you take advantage of that if you know someone who needs her services. For now, I just want to wish you happy holidays. Whatever you celebrate, if it's Christmas, if it's Hanukkah, if you don't celebrate anything, please take this moment to just relax, breathe, and enjoy yourself. You've earned it. This will be the last episode of the year. So... Till next year, happy new year.
Welcome everyone to another episode of As Told by Nomads. And today's episode is with Hillary Walsh. Now, Hillary is a former foster care and juvie turned lawyer. Hillary helps immigrants to live free in the United States outside of New Frontier. She is an adjunct law professor, mother of four, military wife, and avid Phoenix son, uh, Suns fan. So she's uh, she's a fan of Devin Booker. <laughs> and in the past 10 plus years of practice in immigration law, she's represented clients before the U.S. Supreme Court, the Supreme Court of Nevada, the Ninth, Sixth, and the Fifth Circuit Courts of Appeals, the Board of Immigration Appeals, and immigration courts nationwide. So she's very well versed in the art of immigration law. She believes that there is a solution for every problem, and she injects that with relentlessness in her approach to immigration law. Today, we're going to be talking about her career and her background. But before that, let me give you a hearty welcome. Welcome to the show, Hillary. Thank you so much. I see they've got the Lakers jersey from <laughs> Kobe in your life. So, I mean, well, we all do. I'm not actually a, a Lakers fan. I'm a LeBron fan. So if you look oh, at the LeBron fan. Okay. Okay. If you look at the other side, I have his Cleveland and Miami Heat jersey. For those listening on audio, she's referring to my wall. But no, I've been uh, been an avid. I used to want to be a basketball player. Uh, until it wasn't a reality. And so... Yeah, me too. <laughs> I'm fine too. So that ended in like sixth grade for me. But no, thank you for having me on. And, you know, LeBron is amazing. Uh, there's no denying it. And it's so much fun to watch him play. It's hard to boo LeBron when he's at the free throw line because you're like, I still want to see greatness. <laughs> well, we're not having a good season this year. But you all, I mean, you've been to, you know, you've been to the finals, you know, two years ago. I'm a huge fan of Devin Booker. So I, I hope and wish the best for you all. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been interesting to watch them change their game this year. And I know it's not a a basketball podcast, but it is basketball season. You just take so much, I think, from professional athletes' commitment and consistency. And it's something that you get to watch the human spirit just really thrive on a basketball court. I love that. The audience is used to me bringing sports references. I use that in my speeches and consulting because I was an athlete. And I do think, like you said, there are many translatable skills But the translatable skill that we can take from sports to your life is this concept of resilience. In your bio, I was talking about you being a former foster care and juvie kid. What was your childhood like? Well, I mean, I'm not the child of a Nigerian diplomat. I'm the child of a couple of hardworking American folks who did their best and were raised, both of them are raised in environments of alcoholism and domestic violence. And Sometimes what we're raised with, we repeat. That was my experience. I'm happy to say that I've gotten to break that cycle of domestic violence in my lifetime, which is like such a big deal. And the more I learn about how hard it is to break cycles, the, I guess, more proud I am of being able to be that person in my lineage. My childhood was, I think, very common for perhaps middle America. Maybe we all think that we're just normal and we're trying to rationalize it that way. But I do think that The more people I talk to, I mean, you even have like Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt having very public conversation in court about potential domestic violence, alleged domestic violence. We had the same thing with Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. And there's something, I don't know if it's just an American thing, you can tell me better than anything, but there's a fascination with domestic violence and that there are secret things going on behind closed doors. And it's definitely only a part of my life. But because it is a part of my life, I think it's important to talk about it in the non like, what is it? The voyeuristic way where people are attracted to something like looking at a train wreck or rubbernecking when you drive by a car wreck. I think that domestic violence has a bit of that. 
I can bring a non-voyeurism to it where this is part of my life. This is something that I see happen in my clients, my undocumented immigrant clients' lives all the time. It's not fascinating. It's disgusting. And yet it is happening behind closed doors every day among the rich and the famous and also the poor and disenfranchised as well. Domestic violence is definitely a global issue and is something that a lot of uh, people that I grew up with always talked about. But depending on the cultures you have, the culture of silence is usually what dominates this idea of not wanting to bring shame to the family. But that leads to people suffering in silence. And like you said, there's a generational curse almost or promotion of that when you don't know any better in terms of that. So it's something that I'm happy to you given voice to because if you say you were able to break that cycle, what was that breaking point for you where you realized that it was time to change? I think when I moved away from my whole life, I was drawn to away from Kansas and away from small town. And it didn't make any sense. We had to drive like 45 minutes, 30 minutes to get a gallon of milk. Like we lived in the middle of nowhere middle of the field, literally in Kansas. But I was always drawn to big city living. And I mean, I'm not in New York, but Phoenix is the fifth largest city in the US. And I was so drawn to move back here and live in a city. And I think that is the draw of changing and being different in my family tree. It was time to really step out of that vibration, that generational, that acceptance And when I was 19, I met my husband and future husband and realized that he was leaving town. Like we joke now that we're, we've been married for, you know, 17, 18 years that I met him and was like, you're my ticket out of here. We should get married. Like you should propose immediately all of the things. And on some level, I think that that was a really good self-protection mechanism. I also just made a really good decision. He made a good decision by marrying me. I made a good decision by marrying him. And that was the breaking point where I had gotten out enough. You know, I was like right after I was in foster care within a year, I was competing for Miss Kansas to pay for like a pageant program in the United States to pay for school because I didn't have any money to pay for higher education. And my parents had no value on it because they're self-made, very successful entrepreneurs. They didn't value education. They didn't go to high school. Why are you paying all this money for school? I really wanted to go to school because I knew that there was some draw to go out and be different than what I had already seen in my life. And so here I am like, you know, a year away from being removed, two years probably from being removed from my home because I had gotten the crap beat out of me. And now I'm on stage walking around in a two-piece swimsuit, being truly inspected by a thousand people at a time in this like very public way. I think all of those things just really set you up for maybe being seen and being vulnerable and deciding that I'm not going to live like this anymore. It's interesting hearing you talk about that because I can see how you became aware of how an environment can either help you success or promote or enable you rather. That's the word I was looking for. And so you, you said it was a part of you that was drawn to city living. So you, you recognize that. And part of your environment was also in the people around you, which your, your husband now. And I think it's an important lesson to learn in life, you, you're an entrepreneur, so you, you recognize this when you're building a team, the people you have around you and the environment you cultivate can either help you success or really bring you down in terms of failure. So I appreciate you bringing that up. Hearing you talk about being scrutinized and being judged, I'm reflected on just how much you put yourself through that because I'm sure you were subject to so many beauty standards and 
you probably felt like you had to fit into certain beauty standards and then you had the pressure of trying to pay for school. So did you do anything for your mental health during those points in your life? No. And thankfully, I didn't really drink alcohol at the time. I later began to drink a lot of alcohol when I was an attorney. And, and when I became a mom, I drank a lot of alcohol and I'm like 20-ish months alcohol-free now. And so now I'm on the other side of that. And it's like, oh, I, I give a lot of compassion to myself. I often joke like, oh, I see why I used to abuse alcohol. But no, it was put one foot in front of the other and just keep going and enjoy the ride. And you're trying to find out who you are. And I think those early 20 years are really difficult because everyone expects you to know what you're going to be when you grow up. And now I'm a lot closer to 40 than to 20 and realizing that I still don't really know what I want to be when I grow up. But that's what's so fun about it. It's like getting to go to a a multinational buffet every day for lunch and you don't have to pick the same food every day. That is so exciting and so fun. I wish that kids could see that, but it's so hard when you're young to know that, look, it, it's okay and the road will open up and all of these other things. Yeah, it's okay not to know what you want. And we sometimes live in a culture that if you don't know what you want, you're seen as a failure. That's the truth of the matter. And it also depends on the culture you're from too, because there's, you know, you have so much pressure, especially segue into immigration. When you think about coming into, say, United States, for example, there's a lot of pressure that a lot of kids have to be the the support system for the family back home. And because of that, they might forego goals that they have or dreams that they have because it's not quote unquote realistic or it's going to take longer than normal and they can't afford to quote unquote waste time while the family is suffering. You deal with a lot of clients from different parts of the world who are trying to come to the United States and they're facing multiple barriers. How did you transition from pageantry to immigration law? And why are you still in immigration law? When I was a teenager, my aunt was a missionary in Uganda and they had been there for about 10 years and they were wrapping up their time being missionaries in Uganda. And so my grandmother was not comfortable traveling to Uganda by herself. So my mom and dad said, well, send Hillary, she'll go. And I had never been out of the country before. And my grandma really, you know, she hadn't been either. So it was quite the country mice leave and travel to Africa experience. I remember changing, you know, in London, you have to change airports from Heathrow to Gatwick and Gatwick to Heathrow and that experience with granny. But I went and saw this other world that I had only read about in books. And I didn't know then that I was about to go home and experience the things that would later make me a really good immigration lawyer. I would go home and go to foster care. I would go home and be rebellious and my parents wouldn't be able to control me. And this would be like all of the things were on the way. But first, you had to go to Uganda and see this other world and people who don't look like you, who don't live a life like you, who they don't value the same things as you because you're so privileged that you get to go and be nourished by people who you think that you're there to help save, but in reality, they're here to help save you. That was a really big landmark moment in my life. And then later on, about 10 years later, I went back when my husband was deployed to, I guess it was Operation Iraqi Freedom at the time. He was deployed to go drop bombs in Iraq and I didn't know where to go. We were stationed in Japan at the time. So I was kind of limited in what I could see and do by myself as an early 20s person in Japan. So I went back and stayed for about three, four months in Uganda and volunteered at, a, at an orphanage there. 
that experience really drove home because I was finishing my undergrad. It was in political science because we had moved around so much. I was going to be a music teacher. Couldn't do that while moving around with the military. And I decided I'm going to go to law school. I met this woman who said that her greatest dream was to be a judge in Uganda. This is a woman who'd been displaced from Northern Uganda because of the Lord's Resistance Army's horrendous human rights violations there. So she's down in Jinja, right by Lake Victoria. She's saying that her greatest dream was to be a female judge. And I remember in that moment thinking, I just don't think that's ever going to be possible for you. I know it could be possible for me. Now, I don't want to be a judge. I think that's a job that I am not called to, but I was called to the law. And in law school, the first person I met who really stood out to me was an immigration law professor. And I was drawn to her and have really followed her footsteps. Yeah, now, the few things you said when your husband was deployed to drop bombs in Iraq, I remember that time period. How does that land with you? Because a lot of the people you will end up representing are people who get displaced in those situations. And so what is that conversation like within yourself, understanding the complexity of what's going on in the global politics, as well as the idea of people trying to find home? One of my absolute all-time favorite clients was an Afghan translator for the Marines during the Afghanistan war that lasted for so long. He's here now. We're fighting to keep his brother from getting deported. His brother's been granted asylum multiple times, but we're still fighting immigration judges who are saying, yes, he's deserving of asylum. Great. That's what we want. And the U.S. government saying, no, he's not deserving of asylum. So he is eligible for it, but he's not deserving of it as a human. So we should still deport him to Afghanistan. And that's an element of being granted asylum is you have to show that you're worthy of the discretion of the U.S. government, really the attorney general. So like the whole thing is kind of wild, but it's hard to say. It's hard to say where we would be had the U.S. not gotten involved in Afghanistan. I wish that we could all look at it and say that it's better because we went. I wish that we could say that about Vietnam. I don't think that we can for either. No, I used to live in Vietnam. (laughs) And you you certainly felt the effects of that sometimes. Yeah, yeah. We went for our 10th wedding anniversary to Vietnam and we went to the prison camp where John McCain had been detained. And the narrative, the conversation with the way that, you know, that is portrayed is so different than the American narrative. It is one of those things where you have to recognize patriotism and the way we view one person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter. And it really depends on where you're sitting at. And we have to think about when we get involved in war in the sense of real lives are impacted for many, many generations. And this is not a trigger one should pull in anger or with haste. It's difficult for our country's leaders, for any country's leaders to make these big decisions I wish that we could think through them a little bit better sometimes. I hear you. You know, you said the word deserving versus so you qualify versus deserving. That just lets me ask a bunch of questions here. What exactly will make someone deserving? What are the barriers that exist for immigration here in the United States when it comes to that kind of situation? So for folks who are unfamiliar, asylum is a nice word, but often gets confused with being in an insane asylum, which is like vernacular from, I don't know, the 70s and 80s, maybe even the 60s, very different things. Asylum really is refuge. I'm deserving of refuge and protection in another country because 
the country I'm from, someone is going to hurt me there and I'm not going to be able to be protected. So I need protection from you. Will you help me out? And so in situations like Afghanistan is a prime example where the most common asylum claim we're seeing from Afghanistan in the United States is I helped Americans. I was trained by Americans. I speak English. My family has been westernized. I got in bed with you guys. We were fighting on the same team and now you're gone and no one's here to protect me. And in fact, you've recognized the Taliban, the people we were fighting against before, you've now recognized them as the predominant government of Afghanistan. And now they're in charge of issuing travel documents. The Taliban is the government. They're in charge of issuing me my passport. And if I want to go to Pakistan, then I need to get a visa in order to enter that country. And I have to go through the embassy and the Taliban are in charge of issuing me that travel document. They're allowing me to come or go. And once I go in and ask for permission and they realize that I have a background in helping the U.S. military, what do we think is going to happen? And that's why so many people who are in the United States from Afghanistan are asking for protection. So you have to show that you were persecuted or will be. You have a well-founded fear of being persecuted in the future. So we can look in the past or we can look in the future. And then we have to weigh and predict whether it's going to happen again with at least in the Ninth Circuit, a 10% likelihood. So relatively small likelihood, at least a 10% chance that this is going to happen to you in the future. And it's for a specific reason. It can't be because you have short, I mean, in Afghanistan, actually, it could be because you have short bleach blonde hair because you would definitely be identified as being Westernized and probably have lived in the United States and helped them. But it can't be for just any old reason. It has to be for very specific inherent to you reasons, like your political opinion, your religious affiliation, your sexual orientation, things like that. Big things that you really can't change or really ought not have to change in order to be safe in your country. If you're going to be persecuted on those grounds and persecuted is like gnarly stuff, not just like discriminated against, it's persecuted at a higher level. You can show that, then the inquiry becomes. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Are you a good enough person? Do we want you here in the United States? Even if you're going to face this, do we want to give you the discretion of allowing you to stay? My client in particular, the U.S. government is saying he's not deserving. Yes, we mostly agree that he's going to be persecuted if he goes back to Afghanistan, but we actually don't think he's deserving of it. He violated a protective order his then wife had against him. This is about five, six years ago. By going to her home shortly after the protective order was issued, he didn't even know that it had been issued yet. 
and he went to her home. No harm came to her, but he did violate it. I mean, I'm coming from a domestic violence background, but when we look at, are we going to grant someone asylum or not? The government has to do a, a balancing test of here are your bad factors. Here are your good factors. Are the bad factors so bad that we're going to say, yeah, we're still going to send you back to this place where we think you're probably going to be persecuted and maybe even worse. So your bad factors usually have to be pretty bad. He also had a drug conviction where he was pulled over and he had marijuana. Marijuana is now legal. Yeah, I was going to say marijuana is legal now. Yeah. So at the time it wasn't. And really for immigrants, it's not federally legal. Not so it's still yeah. an issue for immigrants. Even if your state law allows it, please don't imbibe, wait until it's federally legal. So he's got these two adverse factors and these two adverse factors, which I mean, are not a big deal. Like this is not a national terrorist threat or anything like that. And that's what we usually see as an adverse consideration. But this guy has been fighting for years and years and years. Meanwhile, his brother's a U.S. citizen. He got a citizenship because he was a translator for the Marines. He was an Afghan who put on a Marine uniform and translated for Marine troops. That's the whole reason that family had to come to the U.S. was because of that brother's involvement. So like the whole system, people feel like they feel like it's going to be like filing your taxes, that there's a rhyme and a reason and predictability to it. That's what we're used to when we interact with the federal government. And then the other side of the federal government, the immigration side, there is no rhyme, there is no reason, and there's no predictability. And unless you have been unfortunate enough to need to deal in that space, you really can't appreciate it. I never had to deal in that space, but I am so grateful that I get to lend the privilege of being someone who looks like almost all my judges and like all the lawmakers, I get to be someone who comes in and gets to say, you guys, the masses, you're not involved in this, but there's a big problem going on with immigration in the United States. Like, come hear about it. It's so interesting because that was going to be my next question. It's an election year. And I will say one of my biggest frustrations whenever I'm listening to any party talk about immigration is the black and whiteness of it all. It is not nuanced. I sometimes will listen to immigration talk and I'm saying, you're not approaching this as if you have people that are on student visas, people that are on all one visas, people that are asylum, you know, refugees, people that are here on asylum rather, and then also refugees and people that might've been displaced. It's so much bigger than just a border conversation. There's often a fear tactic, wherever, you know, whatever side you lead on, where it's come to take the job, you're coming to do this. It's, it's like a lack type of thing. And I'm curious because you brought up the privilege you have with people looking like you and you representing people. How would you frame the conversation if you could talk to any political party about immigration in the United States so that there's a greater understanding of what's at play here? For me, it always comes down to the economics. Everybody can agree on numbers. And so when we look at the economics of immigration, we take away all these other fear-based, really the rhetoric that scares us into making decisions and informing opinions about things we don't actually know about, but we're willing to adopt because that rhetoric resonates with us. And so if you've ever been out of a job and you feel like you got cheated out of a position, or maybe you wanted to go to college and your family couldn't afford whatever college, but you saw through affirmative action, somebody else got in. And so you're making this jump about, well, the reason that person got in and I didn't get in is because they are a minority. We take those made up narratives 
Because we have no idea if that person got into college because they're a minority, but we want to justify their difference is what made them get in and me not be able to get in. We do the same thing with immigration. It's like there's a finite number of resources. We should be using those resources for our own people. And it overlooks like, let's just gloss over the fact that there are like 11 million undocumented immigrants in the United States who all have U.S. citizen children. But I can pierce a hole in that little balloon and pop that rhetoric really fast. But at the core of it is the economics of immigration are so good for our country. Immigration is what makes America great. Like, we don't need to make it great again. We already have it as great. And (laughs) when you've been to other parts of the world, you get to see that. And you get to see that, you know, one of my classmates from law school was watching a TikTok that he was doing. I don't even know when, but I just saw it on TikTok last night. His name is Edgar Flores, and he's a representative in Nevada. And he's first-generation American. And he's like, you know, America is the only place, the only country I know of, where you can come to the country and within one lifetime, your kid's name can be on a building and can be a representative. And you know what? You could even be that person yourself. This really is an incredible land of opportunity. There's so much more available in the United States because of immigration than you know has been taken away because of immigration. And economics bears that out. You cannot lie with it. You cannot argue with the numbers. I mean, you say, but there's a lot of arguments. People will present these arguments, in my opinion, and I think you shared some opinion. They're not, the arguments can't really stand on anything, but that's a lot of the rhetoric now. I'm so glad you painted the picture on, you know, just what you said, you can can pop the bubble. There's a lot of these people who are being threatened with deportation have kids who are American citizens. They contribute to the American citizens. They do all the legal things. They file taxes, but because of this cognitive dissonance that many of us have, we can't see how we are part of the problem because we want to believe something else. And so we latch on to this fear-based narrative as someone is taking away something from us. It's an interesting human behavior that has continued to be perpetuated throughout the years. I really hope that we start to move away from that narrative because it's never that simple. When we look at China, like China is probably in the 70s, the 60s, Russia was a competitor. Russia is not a competitor. It's an irritant now. China is a competitor. When we look at like the global superpower and a global leader, China's in it for the long game. In the United States, we have been so fortunate for so long that we haven't really, as a country, had to put our head down and really suffer for the greater good for this long-term game like the Chinese have. Man, I'm grateful for that because I live a really good life. You live a really good life and America is amazing. But when we look at competition and the long game of this, China doesn't have enough 20-year-olds to support a growing economy. They're trying to encourage and literally pay women to stay home and have babies because they controlled the population for so long that now they've stifled the growth from an entrepreneur perspective. If I know I have great demand, but I don't have enough people to meet the demand, then it doesn't matter how great my product or service is if I can't provide it because I don't have the people to provide it. My business will plateau. It will not be able to continue to grow. And the same is true for the Chinese economy because they don't have enough young people entering the workforce. And what we have is that really painful sandwich where moms and dads, dads and dads, moms and moms in China, they have one kid max because it's so expensive to support their child, but they're also supporting their parents and their in-laws. 
And so you have this extreme pressure to go out and work. Having multiple children has now become a very different thing culturally in China. But in the United States, what do we have? We have millions of people who are wanting to immigrate here who were educated in other countries, saving our country millions and millions of dollars just on education, coming here ready to work, showing up, ready to go work uh, wherever at all different levels. And so the boon of immigration, when we look at, is China really going to outdo us or is immigration going to save our asses? I know what the answer is because we can fast forward 10 years in the future if we stay smart. But I mean, a lot of people, when it comes to the brilliant folks who are wanting to apply and move out of their home countries, the software developers and I don't know, these fancy people who are way smarter than I am who want to get these really extraordinary visas to come to the United States and work. It's taking so long to process their applications that they're moving on to countries that are easier to immigrate to. And we're going to lose out and see that lack of innovation because of our lack of diligence in our own innovation and processing immigration petitions. Okay. I mean, I, I'm a believer. I always describe myself as, a, as an angry optimist. So whatever I am, I, I'm an optimist. Okay. No, I, I really hope that uh, a lot of people can take this to heart. It's no secret that I'm always fighting for social justice. But however, I do believe this type of conversation is for every, everyone, regardless of affiliation. And so I'm glad that you're framing it this way and providing uh, a benefit that can be tangible and people can tie to economics as well, because I do think that's something everyone can relate to. I want to shift to your entrepreneurship career. You've doubled your revenue every year since you've been in business, even in 2020. This is one, one of the things that you've done. I'm curious as to what has worked for you to be so successful. Well, I think that there's a huge need. I grew up in a customer service life, and I think that has helped me so much. So customer service is super important to me. And it's been such a big emphasis in my company and in other immigration law firms. I mean, I haven't ever worked in any other immigration law firms, so I can only base it on what my clients are telling me. They don't feel heard. They don't feel seen. They don't feel that deeper level of connection. We're all craving community. And while we have not necessarily created a community of our own within my firm for our clients, they do feel like we really have their back. And even when we mess up, and sometimes we do, we do our very best to make it right and send people on their way to make sure that if we have made a mistake in your case, we want to do our very best to repair that because you do matter to us and we do see you. And at the end of the day, I think that when we have a really good service, and I believe we provide the very best immigration services, when you have a good service, it's selfish of you not to scale. This is what I'm here for. I'm here to help as many people as I ethically can. And sometimes that means it's hard in terms of, you know, boy, it would be a lot easier if I was just helping one person at a time and I would do such a good job for them and they would love me so much and appreciate me so much. And I would get so much gratification directly from them. And I would be so proud of myself because I was doing this all myself. But I think that a city on a hill cannot be hidden. You got to go out and scale and help as many people as you ethically can if you believe that you provide an outstanding service. That is our duty as entrepreneurs. I love it. The magic combo of transparency and accountability. I often feel like we lose sight of that. So you're accountable when you make mistakes, but you're also transparent about the process to allow other people to grow through that. 
and to invite other people, to teach people that. And in both of the conversations we've been having entrepreneurship immigration, when you apply this fear-based mindset of this person is going to take away my skill set and then take it away and then become their own business, or this person is going to take away opportunity for me, I do think there's a loss out of that. It's a lack mindset, if you will, as opposed to what could happen when you flip it to an abundance mindset. So I've noticed that through line in both of these worlds that you're in. I was telling one of the attorneys who works in my firm, she's a Mexican licensed attorney, and she's here on a visa helping us with so many different things. We primarily represent an undocumented Mexican population. That's our main client base. I was in a meeting yesterday where we were talking about how we need to set our own goal of breaking our own personal four-minute mile. We can't wait around for someone else to break the four-minute mile for us to realize that it can be done. And kind of that mindset of how are we going with grace, ease, joy, all of the things that we can do, how can we help? And we're trying to help a million people get their papers and we can't do it 20 people at a time. We have to do it in mass if we're going to do it. Like, I don't want to be walking around with tennis balls on my walker, still trying to help these million people. Like, let's get really aggressive about this. I was sharing with the team that I'm going to eventually petition for this woman to get her green card in the United States. I believe that she's going to get her LLM someday here in the United States, which will allow her to sit for a bar exam so she can be an attorney. And someday I bet she's going to open her own immigration law firm. And I want her to do that because I don't want her to stay. This would be so boring if this was what she did for the next 25 years, 30 years, whatever it is. She's so young. She probably has 40 years left of work. When I know that she can take what we're learning here at the firm and what we're doing here and do it on her own scale. And maybe that's how we get to a million people. That's it. That's the secret. I always talk about this. You know, people, when I'm on other podcasts or I'm speaking, people ask, well, what's the big goal in your life? And if I'm not talking about fighting against systems of oppression, I'll say I want to empower the next set of global leaders, which I believe around 3 billion people. And so how do you get to 3 billion people? I said, well, if you impact a bunch of people, they go on to do the same. You can't see it as this individual thing. You have to trust the process of what you're doing. And like you said, scale. And so if you don't think in that mindset, it really is selfish, honestly, because you're not trusting what you are doing and the frameworks that you've come up with and the effects of that. And you're not allowing other people to do what they can do. We all have our own privileges. We all have our own areas of influence, but we're not going to influence the same way. I always visualize it. Maybe it's the Kansas girl and me growing up watching farmers plant fields. But for me, it's like planting an orchard. And right now we just have a whole lot of little baby trees that we've planted and those are going to grow. You know, seeds are going to blow in the wind and they're going to find the environment that they can grow and thrive in. And they're going to create their own next little orchard. And that's how long after I'm dead and gone, maybe my kids are dead and gone, I'm still alive because I'm helping all of these people. The legacy, the legacy lives on. If you ever privileged in a if you find yourself in a position of privilege where you have influence, it is your duty to create opportunities and, and access for that. And that's really what the, the case is. There are people listening now who would probably be thinking to themselves, I know someone who needs your service or I need your service. How can they reach out to you? Our law firm is New Frontier Immigration Law. We're in Arizona, but the cool thing about immigration is we get to help people. It's a federal area of the law. So we can help people all over the US and really all over the world. I have clients at one point was trying to keep like, you know, put a pin in the map around the world for everywhere that I had helped clients. And it just got to be where we'd helped people from all over the world. 
granted, like one of the countries you lived in, in central Western Africa, I had never heard of. Or, yeah, Burkina Faso? I had never heard of that. And I'm like, I'm a political science and history major, and I never heard of this country that has 20 million people. Yeah, Burkina Faso is a French-speaking country in West Africa, for those who, who might not have heard as well. I used to live in Ouagadougou. That was the capital. Uh, but yeah, there are many countries. Yeah, I have not represented anyone from there, and now it's time. But yeah, we help people. We really do family-based immigration. So if folks are wanting to immigrate because they're exceptional with their skill or something like that, we would refer you to one of our colleagues who just does that type of work predominantly. But family-based immigration, if you know you got a family member here or if you're coming to seek asylum, that's where we are. That's our superpower. Okay. Well, I'll make sure I put that in the show notes because I do identify with your mission and I think it's very important, honestly. And so in order for us to continue to grow, let's see if we can pair people with the right people who see people for who they are. Yeah. And we're always looking for great talent too. Pairing into that conversation on... How can we help more people? It's like, if you want to grow, we talk about, we refer to ourselves kind of as a basketball team where it's like, sometimes Devin Booker was a different player before he started working with Chris Paul. You know what I mean? That's facts. (laughs) Yeah, facts. And now I just watched him playing and he's got DeAndre Ayton right there under the basket. And it's a different Devin Booker even this year because he's not shooting as much. And it's making me bite my nails and everything else. But you must go and be molded sometimes in order to serve the greater good. And D-Book wants one of those rings real bad. So he's willing to be molded. And I have to think with my coworkers and myself, I want to be molded so I can serve a greater good. And I can't do it myself. Just like Devin can't go win that ring himself. He's got to have the collective. That's right. No, this this has been such a fun conversation. I, so, and I know we could talk for hours about this, but I want to respect the time. And so my final question is this. is I ask this question all the time in my podcast. My mission statement is use your difference to make a difference. So Hillary, how do you use your difference to make a difference? I love that I get to go into spaces where I didn't think that I belonged because I grew up in this different way. So I'm in this... Grew up super poor. My parents shoplifted food uh, from the grocery store, sometimes like uneducated in the higher education sense, but you know, probably lots of street smarts is what we would refer to ourselves as. Street Kansas street smarts, different than New York City street smarts. And I think that because I've had to overcome so many of those conversations in my head about not belonging, I get to invite other people and tell them, you belong here. Any space that you find yourself in, you belong there. And that life has given you these experiences to prepare you for this moment. And nobody else's life has prepared for them for this moment. And so sometimes when it's really, really hard or really, really scary, that is the difference that I get to bring to the table. How crazy that I got to be in juvie. I didn't belong there. Although my husband says the more he learns about me, the more he thinks I probably had a glorified version of myself as a teenager. I was explaining how back in my day, you know, we would smoke pot on a pop can. And he was like, Hill, I really think that you think you were this saint in high school, but you were not a saint in high school. (laughs) And I think that that's the difference. That's the difference of being unexpected and really leaning into saying, I'm going to insert myself in this other space where a person like me usually wouldn't hang out. I don't even understand what's going on in my law firm 90% of the time because I don't speak Spanish. I get to come into this space and say, wherever you are, you belong. And I'm going to make you believe that until you believe that. Wow. There you have it. Creating spaces of belonging with immigration and entrepreneurship by using a difference to make a difference that way. 
Thank you so much, Hillary. This has been a fun conversation. Thank you so much. It was a blast. Yes, 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 yes. I'll, I'll, definitely, I'll definitely be following your work and I'm looking forward to the audience listening to this. So uh, I'm excited to put this out. Till next time, Kings, Queens, and Royalty. Use your difference to make a difference. You've just been listening to the As Told by Nomads podcast. For more ways to reach out to Tayo and to use your difference to make a difference, head over to www.tayoroxon.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.